Welcome, food enthusiasts, to this episode of the Future Foodcast. We're so excited you've decided to join us today. I am very excited as well to have an international business owner with us. Rosalina Molina is the co-founder and CEO of Alesis Orchard. Welcome to the podcast, Rosalino. Hi, Pam. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, very excited to talk about some of the issues uh, that we're addressing down in, in, in Mexico. Yeah, and we're we're excited to have somebody south of the border and, and tell us what's going on down there. But you uh, co-founded this food company. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I guess uh, as with many entrepreneurs, it, it kind of just starts with a personal story. So I happened to be family road trip with my partner and my daughter. My daughter was six months old at the time. We just thought that we had, she was going to sleep through the, the trip. Didn't woke up hungry. And I found myself you know, going into a convenience store to buy baby food, picked up what I thought uh, was just fruit puree, but what I thought was going to going to contain only one ingredient, which ended up containing about eight, which included, you know, things I just didn't expect, like modified cornstarch, rice flour, citric acid, added sugar, water, uh, the list goes, it was actually quite long. I ended up just getting her banana. It was the, the most natural thing that, that I could get for her. And it, it just generated this curiosity for what were we giving our children, uh, like young children as, as young as six months of age, what were we giving them in terms of packaged food? Uh, because everyone, Parents try to make things fresh at home, but it's not always possible. So you resort to prepared options. And it kind of just led me down this rabbit hole where I was, became very curious about what we were doing with our children and just realized that an opportunity to improve the quality of, of what we're giving small children. Yeah. Rosalino, your story, you're right, is not unique. It is often that, especially I find, I'm finding uh, in the food space that food entrepreneurs, it does come out of that personal experience like you had with your daughter. But you, you were not in food at all. As you said, like you were just a dad who was trying to find a solution for his daughter. So how did you even think about starting? I mean, where do you go? Yes, that's a, that's a good point. I guess part of it is, if you could call it destiny, I, it just happened to be something that I became so passionate about that I was willing to dive in. My, my background is in finance. Uh, I worked for large banks about six years uh, prior to. So I had uh, quite a bit of experience in just how, how companies grow, particularly on the financing side of things. But this was like my first deep dive into the operational side of a business. And um, it's it's been a great learning opportunity. I obviously, I have two co-founders, uh, one of which is a, is a uh, food chemist. And, uh, so that helps a lot on like the actual, how does, how do we make these products and how do we ensure that they can, they have a certain uh, shelf life that they're, that we can ensure quality um, once we're selling it. So I'm not doing it alone. Yeah. I, I think that the passion though, kind of keeps me curious as to how to solve things, uh, which I'm sure is again, is common for other entrepreneurs. Yeah. The curiosity is definitely common to entrepreneurs. And I love that you brought into the fold, the things that you were not knowledgeable about the finance background, I will say that was probably very helpful as you went to starting to develop a company and figuring out how to invest and where to start. And then the food scientists definitely for the creation of the product. But what are the needs like down in Mexico? I mean, uh, we have listeners from all over the world. So familiarize us a little bit with the country and and how things work. Sure, sure. So uh, I just uh, as a, as a quick comparison, Mexico has uh, approximately 130 million uh, people relative, I believe the U.S. is slightly over 300. So that just to give you a sense of, of the size. Well, I, I think what most people would be surprised to hear is that although over the past 20 years, you 
seen just a boom in the, the number of natural and organic uh, food options in the U.S. You haven't seen that trend in Mexico. And people assume that because, you know, they you would find similar, if not the same products, but it's actually not the case. So this is why I wasn't able to find like these better quality products in Mexico. And there are people trying to saw like address this, this issue. So like parents are looking for an option. Uh, many of them just ultimately the, the alternative is just make it at home. But there are a lot of inconveniences. You have a lot more dual working households uh, where both parents work. So it, it's, it's a challenge. Um, and it just happened to be people wanted something of better quality. I, I had a reference for what I was seeing in the US, whether I knew like better quality products existed. And the idea was we can, we can do we can do what's being done there. We can do it here. And actually, so Latin America as a region is, is a leader in agriculture um, in terms of like fresh produce. And we export so many fresh fruits and vegetables to the world that it's kind of, uh, it's this irony. Why don't we use that to make better quality products for, for our children? Yeah, that's, you are in the middle of really a great source of food, which with, honestly, with the supply chain issues that we've been having in in recent times with the pandemic and all the different things that have gone on, the local sourcing is becoming more and more popular. So you were able to capitalize on some of the materials that were readily available in Mexico, plus probably foods that are familiar. Uh, when you're introducing a new product, it's nice as a parent to know the foods are already familiar to me, or I, I know that they're available in my region. So it's not some foreign thing that, that you're creating. Uh, and then how did you start making food? Did you just start with some of the common uh, fruits and vegetables that are available? Yeah, yes and no. I, I think one of our big learnings uh, was that we had to, because we had to keep things familiar for parents while innovating and adding something that was different that people were still relatively familiar with. So uh, one example is, I think there, there are spinach purees out there. They're like pear purees. We decided to make something that was like spinach, pear, and avocado. And just because <laughs> it's, I, I've seen the price of avocados in the U.S. sometimes, and I'm like, whoa, okay, there's a there's a difference. It just goes back to what you were saying is sourcing. So uh, we're based out of Mexico City. Uh, we have the largest food distribution center in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, is based out of Mexico City, and it's just a matter of how Mexico City is just a hub within Mexico of food. So you just have. <laughs> just many suppliers who who go through that market and that's where we can find local local suppliers from with from the Mexico City area and source the majority of our ingredients and aside from things like avocado uh, we obviously use, like use fresh mango there are just some tropical fruits that we use like mame which is more of like a um, it's more typical in, in Mexico but we're trying to aside from just being fresh we're trying to use ingredients as you were saying that are native to the region that are different that people haven't seen in baby food are very nutritious and outside of packaged food you eat the, you consume these ingredients in a normal diet mm -hmm. uh so we're, we're trying to make something that's a bit more custom for the population yeah and i well two things uh number one is that creating um food out of what the parents would normally be eating as well, because I was one of those parents that uh, before there was this boom in organic baby food and naturally sourced uh, without all the additives in it, you know, we used to just have the jars with all the things in it, like you found when you were first looking for your daughter. Uh, I used to make extra of whatever we were eating, my husband and I, and then I would um, grind it down and 
and do a puree to feed it to the baby. So that's number one. I'm excited about what you're doing. I know that as parents, we we do want to feed our children the best they can find that we can find. Uh, the second part is though, I had no idea that the largest food distribution center in the Western Hemisphere is in Mexico City. That's a revelation to me, and I'm sure to a lot of our podcast listeners had no idea about that. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. And I do love avocados too. I'm, I eat, can I get some of your baby food? I'm ready. I, oh, I'll have yeah. some snack. <laughs> we, can, we can figure that out. Uh, that would be great. Yeah. Um, so, so how do you, you were talking about uh, Mexico City is a big population hub. So obviously a lot of people can, you can get your products and, and make them available there. And there's a large population there. How did you deliver or did you have your products available in stores like what did that look like of course of course so uh, a bit of the story of how we started um we ended up getting a, a grant from the government which helped us get the operational side of the, of the business off the ground that was very helpful and, and my co-founder worked in the food industry um for quite a few years and helped with uh, setting up the processes and, and like the regulatory requirements. But aside from that, we, we, everyone starts from nothing. And I have to highlight that because we, we didn't exist and just, we didn't start and go directly into retail, which is what I guess the traditional uh, food brands do. We started off as an e-commerce platform where we will purchase packs of like eight, 12 or some uh, purchased 24 packs of our products. And I think this was a great start and it continues to be a, a really good channel for us because we're able to offer a customized uh, experience where we offer really good customer service. Uh, I think that's most companies that start off will say, you need that. And then the second thing is that we just have really quick delivery. So we try to get uh, product uh, to in customers' hands in less than 90 minutes. And just based on how Mexico is located, we can do that for, for the majority of our customers. Less than 90 minutes. That's quite a high bar. That's, I guess, because of the centralization of Mexico City and where the population is. Correct, correct. Uh, meaning a, a lot of it, because we use third-party platforms, it's it's kind of like the, uh, there, are, there are many references in the US, I understand, like Grubhub and uh, Uber Eats, yes. where you work with a third party who helps get you a, a messenger, they pick up the product and they get it to the end consumer. So it's, it's not that, it's actually not that challenging. I think traffic <laughs> gets us a lot of time. Um, Mexico City just has, again, because of the concentration of the population, that's more of an issue. But the aside from that, we're, we're generally okay. Yeah, we have that traffic problem in big cities here in the United States, as well as I'm sure some of our listeners around the world that have uh, large city hubs, that is just a common problem. Sometimes you can walk or ride a bike faster than you you could if you're in a motor vehicle on the road to get somewhere. All right. And what was the timing of this, Rosalino? Because e-commerce has taken off in the past couple yes. of years, but you started yes. there. Yeah. So um, I, I I think I've mentioned, uh, so I, I we started this uh, almost three years ago, and I've also happened to be doing a part-time master's program. So um, you're right that when we started, e-commerce wasn't doing as well as it is now. Uh, I think because of COVID, uh, we just started seeing much more traffic uh, and consumers willing to make online purchases for food, whereas previously it was more of a, like it, it was all within the supermarket, get your groceries at the at the physical store. That was, it was more of that experience. But as you're saying, e-commerce is booming. Uh, we're, we're seeing that. I think the other interesting thing though that, that we're doing is we've learned that customers still like to do both. So it's not just 
e-commerce and it's not just purely still going to like the physical supermarket. So over the past nine months, we, we, did a, we did a trial with a retailer back in the fall. We're entering a second a retailer in Mexico as of next month. And uh, so things are very exciting. And I, I think uh, all of this just validates that the, the interest, not only from the consumer side, but also from retailers in seeing a bit more innovation in the category. I, again, you, you have it in the US, but in Mexico, when we speak to buyers, they're still the, uh, oh, wait, there we can do something different. And that's, I think that helps us stand out. Yeah, that's exciting. And I, I just wanted to point out that you, you did start opposite of how a lot of companies traditionally have started. I, I think that may be changing because consumer buying habits have changed. As you talked about, we are much more open after the pandemic to ordering online and or having things delivered to our home instead of going out to a store and, and buying them. But the fact that you started in the e-commerce, I feel like that probably gave you a leg up when the pandemic hit because you already had that distribution channel in the works and, and working at some level and could just expand on that easier than another company who was brick and mortar or uh, retail based and then had to try to figure out the e-commerce piece, which is more common to hear today. So that's very exciting for your for your growth. And now that you can go out to the, the retail agreements and, and be able to have the best of both worlds, because you talked about Mexico City being kind of, you know, central and a hub. And you got to think about, you can't deliver 90 minutes to everybody in Mexico. No, no definitely not. Um, and this is actually, uh, we have like this target internally where we're trying to reach 70% of children over the next five years in, in Mexico. So that uh, 70% of all families with children within the age range that we, that we target have access to our products. Maybe not everyone will actually purchase via e-commerce, but if we can have retail partners in particular cities, mm -hmm. uh, that that's kind of like the goal that we're targeting for someone to have a store in their neighborhood where oh. they could find us. So that's kind of like the distribution plan is thinking, okay, e-commerce is one route. You know, we can place a greater focus even on like national orders, which just, I, there's a bit more of a focus on quality assurance. We have a fresh product. So keeping it cool during the, the while it's while it's delivered is is something that we'll have to work on. But the retail piece complements uh, that goal that we have uh, very well. Sounds like that all works together. Now, you talked earlier about having to get everything in place. And, and one of the things you mentioned was the, the regulations, like the regulatory piece. How is that set up in Mexico or how is that different from where other places do it around the world as far as what kind of standards do you have to meet? Or is there certain labeling or, or how does that work? Sure, sure. Um, so I, I don't want to go into the details about the the, the bodies. Uh, it is yeah. the, the things are different. There isn't the FDA equivalent isn't uh isn't regulating there's another entity that focuses on on food quality okay at a, at a different level but aside from that just being subject to, to an audit right now we're transitioning we we have there's no organic baby food company in mexico we're actually in the process of we we have to modify some of our infrastructure to so that we can obtain this uh certification. But I think that would be the gold standard for us. And I think it would really position us as the leader in, in the natural and organic baby food market. Uh, so that's what we have in the works. Um, and I, honestly, uh, because we're dealing with fresh produce, I think the key piece here is actually our suppliers. And so we work with uh, a select few. And I, over time, we'll, we'll see how things will probably face some issues, some challenges as we scale, uh, because we're looking, working more with local uh, suppliers who we've gotten to know at this point. 
But I think uh, scaling the business uh, and looking for other trusted partners will be one of those challenges where it'll be a good problem to have and that if we're growing at that pace, we'll be excited to look for other partners like this. Uh, but but it's there, there's like a regulatory component. There's also just who are your suppliers, who are you sourcing from? Because there's not necessarily someone auditing that directly. But for us, we know it's because we're working from fresh produce that so that's probably the, the most important part. Well, I think your name is going to be well known. Now, I said Alyssa's Orchard, but what's the Spanish translation? Or I guess I'm giving the English translation. What's the of name course. of the company in it's, Mexico? Okay, it's La Huerta de Lisa. So it's a bit longer, and sometimes people will shorten it. It, it, it goes back to my to my daughter. Uh, Elisa is is my daughter, and so the project revolved revolved around her. She's a bit older now, sure. Uh, so still does some of the sampling, but I, I think the idea is to just keep it as like a, a baby and, and a and a, a kids brand. I I would love to talk in a moment about some of the things that we have coming up because it, we're not just a, a baby food brand, or that's not the goal. Uh, we have more ambitious right. plans. Outside. Right. Well, I, I would love to segue there. I, I want to know, and I think our audience does too, What what's next for you? Sure. And what ideas do you have for expansion and scaling you talked about earlier? Not just with the products you have, obviously you have some other things in mind. Of course, of course. So this is where things get really exciting because when you're really focused on the customer, you learn a lot. We, we learned a lot when we were formulating products uh, and we were, I think one of the, the it, this is probably the biggest lesson learned for any entrepreneur, food entrepreneur out there is taste trumps nutrition and then trumps design, meaning that taste is a, the one thing that you have to get right. If it's nutritious and not tasty, it's not going to work. If it's well designed, but not nutritious and not tasty, it's definitely not going to work. And I, I say this because we we had, I think we have a, a great, we've, we've always uh, hired great designers who have helped with the brand. So we've been well on that side. We came in with this, let's make the most nutritious product out there, but went too far to, to uh, on that extreme where we were using, our first products were all vegetable based. And uh, any parents out there will know that you, you, have to, you have to push vegetables onto a child and you have to try many times you can't give up, but we ended up pivoting. And now we have more balanced approach where we always try to have a mix of like two to three food groups in any, any recipe that we make. So that, that was a, a big learning. Now, as we think about expanding products, um, one of the things we learned from customers is that the ones are, are very loyal customers were ultimately falling off because their kids were just growing up. So it wasn't a matter of like, we don't want to, to purchase your products anymore. It's just uh, my, my kid's looking for something different. He's looking for something, or like the parents are looking for something more complex. So now we're just launching products for older children. And so we're moving past the 12 uh, and 18 month stage. And now we're incorporating more grains, uh, some of the foods that are considered allergens for like children under 12 months of age. And then there are different formats that those are newer projects that we will probably take about another year to launch, but we're thinking different formats for just children who aren't being spoon fed anymore. What do what do healthy snacks or healthy foods for them look like? Uh, that's ex that is very exciting, and I, that's a great uh, lesson for the takeaway of listening to your customer and the fact that you go through all this work to get these customers who are very loyal for the amount of time that you have product for their child's age, but then they would still want to buy from you if you had 
some other products available. Of course, they loved what you already produced and they know, you know, once your name gets known, then they're going to say, what else do you have? What else do you have? So you're filling in the, what else do you have question and trying to fill that pipeline. So you don't have to see them go back out the back end. You can bring them in and keep them for a longer amount of time. And, you know, maybe, um, I know I love some healthy kids snacks too. I, I don't think you have to have certain age, <laughs> certain age parameters. Rosalino, I'm, I'm all about if it's good and it's snackable, cheese sticks, I think were originally created for kids. I love cheese sticks. That, for example, that's not one of your products, I realize, but to, to the example that you were making. So that's that's very exciting about what the future holds. Definitely, definitely. Um, and, and, and I believe that uh, another point we had, we had spoken about regulatory. I think you were going back to the regulatory piece. Yeah. This is just something, again, for more of the international audience. Mexico is one of four countries in Latin America right, right now that has implemented this frontal warning label uh, on, on foods. So if a food has an excess of calories or sugars or sodium or saturated fat, it now contains a, a warning label in all black with white letters. It's very, it's, it's just consistent across all products. And it's creating this kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's meant to help with a consumer decision-making when you're looking at something. And many, many consumers probably don't have time, but I think buying many things in the supermarket is quite complex. You go in with a long list and to look at the ingredients list for everything, for all the options that you have within a certain product can be overwhelming. Um, so I, this is meant to help just consumers just know upfront whether there there's anything that that need, they need to know on the excess calorie side or of things. So Mexico is one of four countries that's done this. Uh, there are two other countries, Colombia and Brazil, that are going to be implementing this over the next two years. So there's a trend in Latin America towards uh, informing the consumer a bit more, and this is helping us stand out because we we don't have these we don't have these labels because. It's we just use fresh fruits and vegetables, no added sugar or sodium. We, we cold press our products to, to keep them fresh. And so at least on the labeling side, there's a differentiator and there are more niche uh, regulations that have been implemented, including cereal. So if a cereal company has one of these uh, labels like excess sugar, excess calories, they can no longer use our cartoon characters. Uh, the, another one is if, if you have one of these uh, warning labels, you also can't be certified by a third party like the Pediatric Association or like the Diabetes Association. Basically, there's, there's just, it, it's kind of confusing almost that you would, you know, something would have excess sugar and then be approved by some third, third party. Uh, so there, there, are many, there are many things that have changed over the past year and a half creating quite a few opportunities and we're, we're focused on children and we will continue to focus on children, but just across the board, you're starting to see some trends where there are opportunities for food, food entrepreneurs to come in and just make better quality products. Yeah. And thanks for informing us about that. You know, other parts of the world aren't necessarily, you know, we don't know that that's happening in some of those South American countries. And that's really a move towards helping the consumer make better choices from a health standpoint to limit the things that are in excess that we're supposed to be watching. Because you're right, everybody doesn't read all the labels or either they don't have the time to read the labels or they don't really have the knowledge to know what all the numbers mean or, or maybe they don't care. Right. And right. they just know 
in the family recipe, I need this. And, and they always have bought it without thinking about what that might mean for uh, their health or their family's health. So that's a really good point, Rosalino. Well, we have covered so many great things in our conversation today, but is there anything else you would like for our podcast audience to know? Um, let's see. Just for, for the other entrepreneurs out there, offer some insight for as someone who's probably at the earlier stage of things. One of the challenges, but also when things work out well, one of like the blessings is when you find just really good people to work with. And, and I think you, do, you made reference to this, you're, whether you're a, a solo founder or you have a team, you're, gonna, you're still always going to have gaps in terms of your knowledge or your expertise. So for, in my case, finding someone from the food industry to come on at like a co-founder level, or then finding people in marketing who were very good at what they do because we were not, I mean, I'm not great at marketing at all. Uh, I'm more of the strategy finance person, but just uh, hiring people who, who are aligned with your vision, your mission, and who can live your values. I think the, the customer service piece is, is, I want to draw more attention to that because it's, mm-hmm. it's a huge differentiator. And particularly when you're starting off, you're not gonna have the greatest distribution not a lot of people are going to know you, but if you can start to wow a couple of people, it helps get that kind of word of mouth going. And and even as we continue to grow, where we pay a lot of attention to who we, who we recruit. So I want to highlight that because for other entrepreneurs who are out there who are just starting and thinking through how do you structure, do you do it solo? You Maybe you do it solo, maybe on how things are structured for co-founders and things like that, but just know that. It, it takes a team and you're going to need quite a few different skill sets. Uh, so I wouldn't want to say that I, I do this alone. There, there, there's a group of people that I'm working with constantly and, and they're doing a lot of like the in detail work. Yeah. So just highlighting how important talent is when you're getting something off the ground is something that I want to point out. Yeah. Thanks for those words of wisdom, Rosalino, because especially today, finding quality people to partner with either as employees or business partners, you know, it's, it's hard or it seems harder. People are talking about shortages of, of people looking, but I think that to your point, don't settle, find the people that resonate with you that have the same values you do. That's yeah. Especially in that customer service area. And, and you're really highlighting that you feel like that was one of your keys to your success was your excellent above above expectation customer service. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I, uh, I, and, and, it, and it will continue to be part of what we do. I, I have references for other companies that I really look up to and that, are, that aren't in the food industry, but like an Airbnb who had like this huge focus at the beginning on like, let's go and talk to our, our, our customers, our users and see what experiences they're having and then just learn what we can, what we can improve. Yeah, Uh, I don't think that's something we'll ever stop doing. Yeah. Thanks for those words of wisdom. And now that we have so much data, we've got analytics, too, that we can figure out, you know, all the e-commerce that you started in, who who are your customers, how much are they buying, how often are they buying? And then you can dive into that with them and try to give them more of what they're looking for. Thank you so much for your insight today on the Future Foodcast. We really appreciate you being with us, Rosalino. Of course, Pat, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you again for having me. And uh, I actually look forward to just hearing other people's insights in other episodes as well. So thank you for organizing this. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. 
subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 